0: Thank you, Pastor Wade, and just thank you for the opportunity being able to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> as we get started, I uh, needed to do just a little bit of housekeeping during the break. After the first service, uh, the question that was asked most often of me was not about the sermon. It was about, uh, are you Chinese? Because <laughs> the people said, you look Chinese, but you have a Japanese last name, and so they were very confused. So Just to to clarify that, uh, since some of you might be wondering the whole sermon, uh, I'm Japanese-American. And so I'm fourth-generation Japanese. And so uh, I don't speak Japanese. I had to take it in college. And my teacher hated me because I brought shame uh, because I was such a horrible student. Um, Let me see. Guys, are we on? I'm trying to connect here. We were having, should I go to the mini? Am I on? Okay. So, oh, the problem was me, sorry. (laughs) Um, And so this is very quickly, this is my family. The other question I got was, where'd you come from? And so uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. That's why I appreciate your hat there. Um, and uh, we're temporarily living in Phoenix, Arizona. And so this is my wife, Sonia. Uh, We've been married 25 years, uh, and we have four children. My oldest is married, uh, living in L.A. Uh, Number two is out ministering in Cambodia, and number three and number four are here with us traveling in Hong Kong. And so that's just a little bit about us, and I'll be sharing in just a moment about them. Uh, The other part of the housekeeping is that I sent the wrong information to Pastor Wade For the sermon title. So this morning's sermon is titled Longing for Resurrection. The focus is still the same, um, and the text will be primarily 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so I wanted to speak about resurrection this morning, and to do so I wanted to focus our hearts and our minds upon the Apostle Paul who lived a resurrection life. And uh, to start our time, I just wanted to start with a story and take you back to March 20. 20. And so March 2020, uh, I flew out to Bangkok uh, with my friend Nathan, who a young man I was discipling, and we traveled, and I did some uh, training of pastors in Bangkok. And while we were on the plane, people kept talking about this thing called a pandemic. And we were a little concerned, but I ignorantly thought, well, it'll probably last maybe one or two months. And so uh, as we were getting ready to return to LA, we discovered that, no, this is far more serious. And so we got in just in time before the borders closed. And then three days after getting home, uh, my wife, Sonia, got very sick. And back then, at that time, there was not a lot of uh, testing available, and we didn't know what to do. And so uh, we quarantined her in our master bedroom. She said I could share this picture as long as I didn't show her face. So um, so she would be in that room. We would bring her her food. You could see the tray here. Um, and uh, my children were very concerned, and so they would bring love offerings here of, of chocolate. And she would remain in that room, uh, for the most part, for the next four weeks. Uh, she was very, very sick. Uh, three of my children were at home. The oldest came home early from college. Uh, we also had, two, we still do, uh, have two naughty dogs, and so the house uh, was getting very busy, and I was getting very stressed. Uh, there were a lot of concerns for obviously for Sonia. There was concerns about how to lead and love my family through this. Uh, there were concerns about the economy, as as I am a missionary, and so I wanted resurrection life right now. The Bible speaks of resurrection life someday, final resurrection, but I, I, as a New Testament believer I also believe that there's resurrection power at work today. And so what does that look like? And, and, and to kind of explore that, I want to take us to the Apostle Paul and before we jump into 2 Corinthians, I wanted to take us back to where we're first introduced to him. Back in Acts chapter 8, his name was Saul at the time, and I'll just keep referring to him as Paul. And it says that, that Paul approved of his execution. So our introduction to Paul is actually uh, on his resume says that he approved of an execution of a man named Stephen, who the Bible describes as a man who had a face like an angel. So try to imagine on your resume, number one, uh, you killed a man who had the face of an angel. And there arose a, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and the church scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. and then they buried Stephen. But it wasn't good enough for Paul, and so he was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And so we get this very strong, rude introduction to Paul, And then he temporarily drops off the pages of Scripture and reappears again in chapter 9. In verse 1, it says that Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So that's a very nice and polite way of saying Paul is still very mean and very mad. And so it's not good enough for him to persecute the Christians in the local area. He goes to the high priest and he asks for permission to the letters of the synagogues at Damascus. So now he's spreading out. And he wants to find Christians in order to imprison them and bring them back to Jerusalem. And so at this point, it's natural to begin to wonder, Paul, what's your problem? Have you lost your mind? Why are you acting this way? Are you crazy? And I'd like to propose at this particular time in his life, Paul is not crazy. He's actually full of integrity in the sense that he is acting on what he truly believes. You see, Paul was a Pharisee and Paul's father was a Pharisee. We t- we know that in acts chapter twenty two. And so Paul naturally, as he follows in the family business, wants to be the best of the best. And Pharisees, as you know, were passionate people because of what they believed about the resurrection. They believed that there would be a day of final judgment when the Lord would raise the righteous from the dead, but they also believed that God was going to restore things right now. In other words, you didn't have to wait till the end of time that God was going to be at work bringing renewal and resurrection and restoration to society here. In other words, the Pharisees believed that they could experience real-time resurrection, not just a future one. And so the Jews called this resurrected life here on earth shalom. And shalom was the restoration of human flourishing at every level of society. It was paradise on earth. And so it included a, a vision of financial prosperity, a booming economy, business conducted with integrity, private property ownership, living in surplus. It also included religious prosperity. Religious leaders would lead the people to worship the only true God and live with righteousness. It also included political prosperity. God would use the nation of Israel to lead the rest of the world to worship and obey Him. And so shalom was what the resurrection life looked like for the Pharisees. This was their deepest longing. It's what motivated everything that they did. It dominated not only their studies and their teaching, but it's what they sang about. It's what they prayed for. Now, maybe like me, you're not that much different from the Pharisees. After all, don't we all long for some kind of resurrection? During a pandemic, maybe we too were longing for economic stability in the world and in our own lives. Maybe we, too, were hoping that our churches would grow in greater faithfulness. Maybe we, too, were hoping that our government would lead the world towards what honors God. And do you realize that's exactly how the Pharisees felt? They had a deep longing for a better future of their reality right now, but the reality of what they were experiencing was anything but shalom. The Jewish people lived under the oppression of a pagan Roman Empire. Most were mistreated. Most suffered in harsh poverty. The Jewish religious and political leaders were grabbing for power and money as they sold out to the Romans. Remember the names Caiaphas and Pilate? In the Pharisees' minds, the main problem of why resurrection life was not happening right now was a lack of faithfulness of the people. And so they, by their own interpretation of the Torah, the law, and many other laws that they came up with, they they, they tried to live faithfully, hoping that God would bring resurrection. But that wasn't good enough for them, because it wasn't just about whether they were following the laws in the ways that they interpreted, but they were concerned about the way others were as well. And so if they, they felt like others were not following the law in the way that it was needed to be, then those people were also preventing resurrection from coming. And so interestingly enough, that's why the Pharisees kept plotting against Jesus. In their minds, Jesus was preventing shalom because in their minds, Jesus was not fulfilling the law. He was actually breaking it according to their interpretations. Isn't that ironic that they thought Jesus was the one preventing real-time resurrection? And so as a Pharisee, this is exactly how Paul viewed the world, but all of that was about to change because when Paul reappears again in Acts chapter 9 and he begins his approach to Damascus, we see that he's confronted with suddenly a light from heaven that shone around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Paul has a real and personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. As he's going to do what he thinks he's right is right, the real resurrected Jesus confronts him there on the Damascus Road. This was a turning point for Paul's entire life. It flipped everything upside down. After all, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the righteous one, then the faithfulness of Israel is no longer the answer to the problem. Jesus is. His faithfulness, his righteousness, his resurrection changes everything. And on the flip side, everything that Paul had taught, hoped for, dreamed of, and even killed for was entirely wrong. What flipped his life upside down? Coming to know and see the person of Jesus. The God-man crucified unjustly on the cross of Calvary, yet raised from the dead and standing there in person gloriously before him. And so Paul is changed forever. Now try to imagine that we jump from here and we jump to 2 Corinthians And let's keep in mind that this is 20 years later. And so Paul begins to describe what his life is like after being a Christian for 20 years. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, and we're perplexed but not driven to despair. We're persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Skipping to verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice how Paul, 20 years later, has been walking with Jesus, and as he describes his life and ministry It's not a perfect life. He feels like an earthen vessel, a jar of clay. At times, he's still afflicted and perplexed and persecuted, carrying around the death in his body of Jesus. He acknowledges also that his outer self is wasting away. So a resurrection life with Jesus is not a perfect life. On this earth it's not one devoid of hardship and so as a christian you you know that but as a christian at times it's very easy to get consumed by the brokenness of the world so that's all we see and so in times like this it's very easy to only see death instead of resurrection And if that happens, then life begins to look solely like this. We're just jars of clay, and we're hard-pressed on every side. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. We're always being given over to the death of Jesus' sake. So then death is at work in us. Outwardly, we're wasting away. There's always troubles. It's only about what is seen. It's only what is seen is temporary. Maybe some of you right now feel like this is your life. And you know that you're a follower of Jesus and yet your life looks and feels solely like this. That could have easily been the case for the Apostle Paul and yet somehow he didn't get stuck in seeing only death and challenges and brokenness of this world. And so we have to ask Well, how did he not get stuck? And the answer lies in the section right before this. The verse right before the section in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul gives us a lens that he has for how he sees life. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Notice the theme of his lens. It's the light that shines. And it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. This theme of light Paul has, and it begins to illuminate the way he sees things. And so notice how the light that he describes start, starts broadly, and then it begins to narrow and focus. So he says, uh, for the God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, that's that's a reference to Genesis and creation. And he says, when when, when.'" The uh, universe was devoid of any light, complete darkness. God brought light, created light. And he said as he brought that light, he, he began to narrow and focus that light all the way down into our hearts. And so he, he brings a, a almost like a, a magnifying glass to take the greatness of that light and the purity of that truth and hones it directly into our hearts. And so Paul has this, and it's not just what he says here is, this light, this knowledge of the truth of Jesus is not just a a list of facts. It's not known just in some esoteric kind of floaty way. The way he says that Paul, he says that he came to know this light is in a very personal way. It's in the very face of Jesus. The light is not just some kind of physical entity. The light is a person. It's the risen person of Jesus. You see, when Paul was confronted on that Damascus Road 20 years earlier, and the face of Jesus literally shone in front of him, that very face of Jesus has been the same lens by which he's seen all of life for the next 20 years. And so while he lives in a broken world, he also recognizes as he walks with Jesus day by day that Jesus leads him to see that while we live in a broken world, God is still at work. God's resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead was not some esoteric energy, but it was the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is still bringing new life today. And so, when when Paul sees his life, he doesn't just recognize the brokenness of this world, but at the same time, through and walking with Jesus, he sees that we have a treasure, that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. And therefore, we're not crushed, we're not in despair. We're not abandoned. We're not destroyed. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We who are alive so that his life may also be revealed. But life is at work in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day, achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is unseen, since what is unseen Is eternal. The the vision of reality of the world as it really is is what keeps Paul from getting stuck in the death. In other words, he recognizes in a broken world, God is still at work through the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul sees the resurrected Jesus at work throughout his entire life and ministry. He sees life coming out of death everywhere he works, lives, and prays. Because the spirit of Jesus is actively and repeatedly bringing life from death. And so three years ago, during the pandemic, I began to see that. Uh, slowly but surely, uh, my wife was getting better Eventually, later on, we found out that she did have COVID. It was she tested for the antibodies. And somewhat comical or maybe not so funny, I tested positive for the antibodies, too. And I didn't know I had COVID that whole time. And then these, these things started to happen that were unexpected. And so my youngest son, uh, Jaron, uh, I, I just began to see his heart of servanthood begin to emerge. So he's more quiet, but but he was so concerned for his mom. He 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 made this chicken congee, and then picked this flower. I think it was the neighbors. Maybe he cut the neighbors in the yard. <laughs> but but there seemed to be a, a, a renewal, a resurrection, or, or a recognition of of the servant heart that God was growing in him. And then on another week, uh, I came downstairs. And this is our front living room that our boys had turned into an encampment. I'm so glad my wife was in the bedroom because she would have gone nuts if she would have seen this. And they said, Dad, you can sleep in our room and we will take over the living room. So they make this gigantic tent and they were watching a movie one day and it wasn't just boys camp. They actually invited their sisters in to come as well. And so the, the, the kids were beginning to spend more time together, playing games and, and spending the time that was rare. Uh, Even in my own ministry, I could not travel overseas to train pastors. Everything went to online. Uh, And so I shifted, and uh, this looks like a very high-tech little uh, studio. It's got this soundproofing stuff, but if we were to zoom out the camera, you would discover that I'm sitting in a closet underneath our staircase, hunched over like this. But during that time, God began to deepen and widen the ministry here in Asia. And so what he did was just profound. And so don't be surprised if God brings resurrection in ways that are unexpected to you. Another way of putting it is that he tends to uh, wrap resurrection gifts in wrapping paper that sometimes catches us off guard. And therefore, we need to be intentional. We need to be a resurrection hunter. Two quick ways to do that. Uh, Number one is to keep our eyes focused on the face of Jesus. We don't need to hunt in our situation like, oh God, you're gonna do this, or I'm gonna make this happen. We need to just walk with Jesus. The the, the, uh, tempting thing is for evil to perceive itself as greater than it really is. And so if I were to take a $5 Hong Kong coin and put it up to my eye, and hold it close enough, it actually can give the perception that it can block out the entire sun in the sky. All we have to do is take a few steps back and realize the, the, the coin is just a coin. Evil sometimes has that ability. It's in the media, it's in our heads, it's in conversations, and when it gets really close and it gets really stuck, it almost has the appearance, the deceptive appearance, that it somehow can overtake the very power of God. And so we need to keep our eyes. We need to step back. And in a place like Hong Kong, I know it takes a lot of intentionality to take a step back and to remember who is our king. Secondly, resurrections are often subtle and happen over the course of time. Rarely do they happen uh, just once and everything is changed. They are often mini resurrections that happen. In fact, oftentimes the resurrection of the heart precedes the resurrection of our circumstances. So don't be surprised if change happens in you or in me or someone else before the circumstances begin to shift. And so what if the Jesus that you met years ago still lives today? What if he's still full of power and glory? What if he still cares for you? What if he still cares about you? And what if he still breathes new life into dead people? What if he still breathes new resurrection life into dead spaces? And what if he's not done yet? If this is all true, then there is true hope. We may not despair. We cannot despair. We must not despair because the best is yet to come. Is there hope? Absolutely, because our Savior lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus. And because he conquered death, we have no fear. And while we live in a broken world, we thank you that the promise that you made to us is that we would not be alone, but that you would send your Spirit, the very Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us by your grace. I pray that we would be walking by your Spirit, to be walking into your resurrection power in a way where we would see uh, your light at work in a world of darkness, and that in times we would be a source of light and hope. Lord, help us not to be overcome by evil, but to see you at work, to see your authority, to see your grace, and to be living in that way, in a way that would honor you and even draw others to know you in the same way. So we ask that, we pray for that, in Jesus' name, amen.